Would you open your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 1. By my count, including today, uh, we have 40 days till graduation. So maybe I should go to Matthew 4 or Luke 4 and Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness tempted of the devil. <laughs> I don't know. What are you facing over the next 40 days? You say, you, you, Dr. Saxon, you just have no idea. It's just unbelievable. Nobody's ever faced anything worse than what I'm facing. Well, I don't want to minimize what you're facing, but I do want you to be focused on the right realities as you face them. And so what we're going to do for a few minutes this morning is we're going to look at what Ezekiel was facing. Because he... Uh, He faced hard times. He faced challenges. But ultimately, what got Ezekiel through was not what he was facing, it was who he was seeing. And that may sound kind of trite. Uh, Let me assure you for Ezekiel, it was very, very real. So consider first with me what Ezekiel was facing. And by the way, we are praying for you. we, we faculty, staff, we're facing some things too, but our hearts are primarily wrapped around what you're facing, and we are praying for you to succeed, to do well, to get through. I know that we are some of the trials that you're facing, <laughs> but we are praying for you to succeed, and by God's grace, you will. Verse 1, Ezekiel 1, 1. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, In the fifth day of the month, if you read Ezekiel, you'll discover that the guy is very precise with his dates. Almost every prophecy is dated. It's just a delight for somebody who's mathematical like me. Ezekiel was always careful about his circumstances. And here, he very precisely identifies this event, an event he never forgot. As I was among the captives by the river or canal of Kibar, this was a canal off of the river Euphrates near Babylon, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. It was the fifth day of the month. He remembers the very day. It was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity that the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kibar. What was this man Ezekiel facing? Well, if you read Jeremiah, you discover that Jeremiah is a man of deep emotion who shares his emotions like on his sleeve over and over again for the first 20 chapters. Ezekiel, not so much. You know, he doesn't talk about himself very much at all. And so you might miss the pathos wrapped up in these first three verses. But it turns out that Ezekiel was facing disastrous circumstances. He was reared in Jerusalem, probably born there. He was of a priestly family. He expected that when he turned 30, he was going to become a priest at Jerusalem. He was going to be a member of one of the 12 courses that's selected by Lot. He might at some point be able to minister in the holy place itself. That was his training. That was his preparation. But that's not where he is right now. Because the king has chosen to rebel against Babylon. And that's dumb. You know, Babylon is just really, really powerful. The prophet Jeremiah, for 20 years, has been saying, judgment's coming, 
And when it comes, is don't, don't, don't rebel against Babylon. Just don't do it. And one king after another rebels against Babylon. And so Jehoiakim has rebelled for the last time. And Nebuchadnezzar comes marching west. And as the Babylonian armies descend on Jerusalem, Jehoiakim dies, and his 18-year-old son becomes king, and he's king for three months, and the, and the Babylonian armies arrive. And they open the gates, and Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he takes Jehoiachin, the king, captive, carries him away to Babylon where he will die, and then he decides to take 10,000 more captives. Sort of hostages to make sure you don't do this again. Now, it won't work. I mean, the next king's going to rebel too. You know, they, they, were, they were evil, and evil often leads to stupid. And so one of those 10,000 captives is this 26-year-old priest. He's not a priest yet, but he's desperately wanting to be a priest. But they're carried 900 miles away. Now, it's 900 miles away as you follow the Fertile Crescent. It's 500 miles if you go straight across the desert, but nobody does because you don't make it. It's this long journey. And now he finds himself in this dispirited community where these captives have been, they've, they've, they've built a little community there, Tel Aviv, by the canal near Babylon, where they don't know if they're ever going to see home again. Those are disastrous circumstances. It's Ezekiel's job to tell them that you're never going to see home again. Now, there are false prophets in the community who are saying, God's going to judge Babylon anytime now. Don't worry. You're going to be restored to your home. God has spoken to me. Peace, peace. Don't worry. And Ezekiel's the guy who has to say, not true. You're going to die here. You're going to die here. These are disastrous circumstances. The the disappointment personally may be worse than the circumstances. I mean, it's bad when you're facing hard times. It's worse when you are dispirited and crushed in your own spirit. And Ezekiel has been preparing all his life to be a priest. You say, are you sure that he's really being struck by it that badly? Look at the very first thing he says in verse 1. It came to pass in the 30th year. Nobody knows exactly what he means by that. Because when you back up 30 years from when he got this vision, nothing significant happened. And so the conservative commentators all agree that he's probably referring to his age. That he turned 30. And here's what was supposed to happen. He's supposed to be a priest. 30 years of training, of memorizing Torah, of preparation. It's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. God gives him a pretty good consolation prize. He calls him to be a prophet. But you know what? Being a prophet with these people in this community, not so great. This is a daunting task. Would you turn over with me to chapter 2? Just a page over for most of you? Unless you have a very large print Bible. Verse 1. And he, the Lord, said unto me, Son of man, stand upon thy feet, I will speak unto thee. The Spirit entered into me when he spake unto me. He set me upon my feet, and I heard him that spake unto me. Here's the job, Yahweh says, I have for you to do. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee 
to the children of Israel. To a, all right, what kind of people were the children of Israel? Well, let's read the next six verses and see if you can come up with a good word to describe them. I'll help a little. I send thee to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even to this very day. They are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, and they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them, and thou, son of man, be not afraid of them. Neither be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns be with thee, and thou dost dwell among scorpions. Be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee, be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. If you were going to describe them with one word, what would it be? Ever tried to teach somebody who's rebellious? Ever tried to teach somebody who just sits there with their arms folded and a scowl saying, you can't teach me anything? Proverbs describes that person as a scoffer. You know there's not a single proverb that holds out hope for someone. There's there's more hope for the fool than for the person who already thinks he knows all the answers. And this person is rebellious. These people are rebellious. Ezekiel, this early 30s man, is going to be gathering the elders around him and is going to be saying to them, thus saith the Lord. And they're going to be a rebellious house. This is a daunting task. They've been like this for generations. They and their fathers are this way. They are impudent and stubborn, stiff-hearted. Twice it says, whether they hear or whether they refuse to hear, and you wouldn't have to repeat it if they were going to hear. I wouldn't want his job. I'm so thankful I don't have his job. I get to teach you guys. Ezekiel, he's facing a rough, rough job. He is told, don't fear. This is a scary task. For the next seven years, from 593 593 to 586, for seven years, his message is going to be, you are a bunch of sinners, repent, or God's going to destroy you. There it is. When we get over to chapter 3, and by the way, I'm going to have to summarize a lot of this for you. We get over to chapter 3, we discover as part of this commission, God says, your tongue shall be tied to the roof of your mouth, and you shall not speak unless I send you. And what most of the commentators interpret this to mean, and I, I think it makes the most sense, is that for the next seven to nine years, Yahweh says, here's when you speak, Ezekiel, when you have a message from me and only when you have a message from me. Now, he's probably talking about public speech. We're going to discover as we read along that he's going to need to be tied up at times. He'll need help with that. Well, his wife is probably the one person who helps him. You know, she's the one who helps him with all the little tasks he has. She's the one respite when he goes home. But when he's out and about and people say, Morning, Ezekiel, he says, When they say, Will you come to the funeral? How about the wedding? We're having a party. And then about six months in, he says, Thus saith the Lord! You're a bunch of evil sinners, and if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you! And then he's quiet again for a while. 
What kind of reception would that have in the community? And then as we read on, as bad as things seemed on the day he was called, didn't get easier. He had a difficult future. And I'm not going to teach the next 23 chapters of Ezekiel. But the very first thing God tells him to do is to build a clay model of a city. And so he builds a clay city and builds siege works against it and take an iron pan and lay it against it to symbolize siege by a foreign army and get somebody to tie you up, get your wife to tie you up and lie next to it for a portion of every day for 390 days to picture siege. Oh, and then roll over on your other side for 45 days and we won't get into the meaning of the symbolism, especially since I don't understand it. And then during these 390 days, while he's doing all this crazy stuff, and by the way, it seems like the people saw the city and thought, oh, he must be prophesying that God's going to destroy Babylon. But it wasn't Babylon, it was Jerusalem. God says, by the way, I want you to take a sword and cut all your hair off. Now, uh, the translation that most of us use and carry says a barber's razor. But the text literally says a sharp sword. The word razor there would be one of those short swords that you use for thrusting in battle. What you would use to kill people in a siege. And he says, take one of those and shave off your hair. Perilous. But he does. He obeys. Ezekiel obeys everything he's asked to do. But imagine the people in the village as they're watching this man shave his hair with a sword and then he takes the hair and a third of it he hacks at it with the sword and a third of it he sets fire to and a third of it he throws to the wind. He takes a few and sticks them in his belt. Then Yahweh says, take a few that you stuck in your belt and destroy those two. <laughs> that is just a few too many. And then we get over to chapter 12 and Yahweh says, dig a hole in the wall. So, well, Lord, there's a door. I, I know, dig a hole in the wall. So he digs a hole in the wall and then he blindfolds himself, packs light, because when you have a siege and you're escaping, you can't take much stuff. He goes through it and then wanders out of the village, staggering with his eyes covered. And everybody in Tel Aviv must have thought the guy was a nut. Yahweh said, Ezekiel, you are picturing for this people the judgment that's coming. And Ezekiel said, yes, sir. And you know, I can almost understand it until I get to chapter 24. Would you glance over there with me real quick? Because you get the, to the end of these seven years. Word is going to arrive this day that that Babylonian army you saw marching away a few months ago, well, they were going to Jerusalem. And they have laid siege to Jerusalem. What Jeremiah over in Jerusalem, what Ezekiel here have been saying is coming true. The Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, is tired of Jewish rebellion. This time, he's going to burn the city to the ground. And God decides to give the people one more object lesson. And it's a tough one. Verse 16. Son of man, behold, I take away from thee the desire of thine eyes with a stroke. Right, with a stroke means with a sudden act of providence. I'm going to do this. doesn't mean a 
you know, a stroke in our modern medical sense. Could have been. But I am going to take the desire of your eyes right now. And you're not allowed to weep. Thou shalt not mourn nor weep, neither shall thy tears run down. Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead. Do not bind the tire of thine head, your turban on you. Do not put put on the shoes of your feet. Do not cover your lips. Don't do all the normal things you would do to mourn her passing. And then we read verse 18, one of the most amazing verses in the Old Testament. So I spake unto the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. He's had one ally for seven years. She is the desire of his eyes. She is the one person in the community who doesn't think he's a nut. And Ezekiel says, yes, sir. We don't read that he said, my wife? You can't have my wife. And if you're out there and you have even a moment's thought that was God fair to Ezekiel, (laughs) don't go there. God owns life. God owns death. They belong to him, and if he doesn't own those, he's not God. The only difference between Ezekiel and any of us is that Ezekiel was given a little bit of advance warning. But whenever somebody dies, Yahweh is in control of that, and he knows what he's doing. We have to trust him. Ezekiel did. But wow, wow, this is hard. Ezekiel was facing a lot worse than I'm facing over the next 40 days. I'm not sure about you. Would you go back to Ezekiel 1? Sometimes what you are facing, you need to be seeing. Uh, We just came, we're, we're in March Madness actually, it's not quite done. And uh, my wife would tell you that I try to watch two or three or 60 of the games. And during this time of year, she will come and stand in front of me and say things. And no doubt they're important. And I'm facing her. But then there's this game going on just, just right there, you know. And, and I'm facing her, but I'm not seeing her. And, and she has learned through hard experience that nothing important should be should take place at those moments. So sometimes you really ought to be seeing what you're facing, you know, be in the moment. But relative to all of these trials, relative to all of these struggles, we've got to be able to lift our eyes past them. And Ezekiel was taught that lesson right at the beginning. Just as he receives his call, Yahweh says, I'm going to show you something that I want to fill your vision for the rest of your life so that when I come in seven years and say, I need your wife, you'll say, yes, sir. What is it that needs to fill Ezekiel's vision? Well, let's pick up in chapter 1 at verse 4. I looked, Ezekiel says, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself and, a bright, and brightness was about it out of the midst thereof as the color of amber out of the midst of the fire. The first thing that Ezekiel is shown here in verse 4 is this magnificent theophany. He sees that God is here. 
Well, where's here? Well, not in Jerusalem, where his temple is. It's at the Kibar River, 900 miles away. That is, Ezekiel got carried away from the holy place. He did not get carried away from Yahweh. Yahweh is there. He is exactly where Ezekiel needs him. And this language reminds Ezekiel of the fire that followed the Israelites through the wilderness and the cloud by day, this this magnificent picture of Yahweh's abiding presence. Well, Ezekiel's got that. These dispirited captives in Tel Aviv, their circumstances could not drag them away from the presence of their God. He is there with them. And so the first lesson is, let him be your fear. Let me me remind you of Isaiah 8 just briefly. Ahaz, wicked king, is under attack from his northern neighbors, Israel, Aram. Why are they attacking him? Because he refuses to join their confederacy against the Assyrians. And they say, we're going to attack you, and Ahaz is scared to death. And Isaiah comes to him and says, Isaiah... Ahaz, you don't need to be afraid of this confederacy. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And the message there is that the bigger God gets, the smaller the problem gets. The more you see him, the more he fills your vision, the more you are cognizant of his power and goodness and wisdom then the problems just don't seem so daunting. You say, but I can't handle it. Of course you can't handle it. He can handle it. Yahweh is here. But before he goes on to talk about Yahweh further, he's interrupted with a vision of Yahweh's agents. Because they're here too. And they're pretty awesome. Beginning of verse 5. Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures. Now when we get to chapter 10, we're going to find out that these are seraphim. And the seraphim are going to be described again for us. And uh, I'm going to move quickly here because there's a lot of detail. But these seraphim are amazing. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. That would be the front. They had four faces. Everyone had four wings. Their feet or their legs were straight. The sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like the color of burnished brass as they looked like Yahweh whom they served. They had the hands of a man under their wings on their four sides. So you got these four wings with hands sprouting. It's kind of weird. But the idea is that they are very competent. Wherever they go, they have hands that can do whatever is needed. The wings suggest they get wherever they need to go. They got two wings for flying, two for humility to cover themselves in the presence of Yahweh. They have, I'll keep reading. Verse 9, their wings were joined one to another. They turned not when they went. They went everyone straight forward. We will read that about four times. They had straight feet. They go straight forward. That suggests unstoppability. That is where they want to go, they get there. Verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, they had the face of a man. They had the face of a lion on the right side. That speaks of royalty or perhaps ferocity. They had the face of an ox on the left side, power and service. They had the face of an eagle in the back, speed or, you know, whatever. These metaphors are suggesting omnicompetence. They can do what is needed. They went everyone straight forward. There it goes again. Whither the spirit goes, they go. They turn not when they go. 
As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches, literally. Going up and down among the living creatures, the fire was bright, out of the fire went forth lightning, and the living creatures ran and returned. What is all this about? You know that Yahweh doesn't need anything or anyone. He is omnipotent and sovereign. But 99.9% of what God does, he does through created agents. He works his will through people and angels. He uses the devil at times to accomplish his purposes. He is sovereign. These are agents of the Godhead, and they are available for whatever Ezekiel needs. So if Ezekiel's got a problem, hey, there's a, there's a, did I say seraphim? They are cherubim. You should not confuse that. My bad. They are cherubim, and they're going to be there for you. You say, well, I'm not sure I'm going to need a cherubim the next 40 days. If you do, they will be there for you. And they go straight forward. Your exam will not stop them. Your summer difficulties where you can't get a job, it will not stop them. God's agents are here, and God's agents accomplish what God sends them to accomplish because they are agents of a sovereign providence. Uh, Dr. Mike Barrett really opened this section of the text to me when he argued that what we're seeing beginning at verse 15 is a massive war chariot. I mean, we're talking massive. Beginning at verse 15, now I beheld... As I beheld the living creatures, I saw wheels. One wheel upon the earth by the living creatures. So a living creature was stationed by each of these four wheels. And then he gives us the appearance of the wheels. And how, verse 17, when they went, they went upon their four sides. They turned not when they went. And there is a wheel inside a wheel. You engineers could not build this. It's like there's a wheel going that way, and there's a wheel going that way, and it can go both ways at once speaks of omnipresence. That the war chariot is wherever it needs to be. These wheels extend all the way up to heaven. They are massive. It speaks of omnipotence. No obstacle slows them down. And there are eyes in the rim of the wheel. Kind of weird looking. But that speaks to omniscience. They see all. Nothing escapes God's notice. And then when we get to verses 19 to 25, which I will not read for sake of time, we discover that the wheels and the living creatures are involved in this beautiful dance, this this perfect symmetry where everything is in concert. The picture here is of nothing random taking place, of everything being part of a plan that is unfolding and is under the perfect control of a sovereign God. And then we get to verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne. So somebody's sitting in the middle of the war chariot, way up there, and it's a throne. What does a throne speak to? Rule, sovereign rule, control. Power. There's a throne. Although it was the likeness of a throne, as the appearance of a sapphire stone, it was beautiful. And upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man sitting upon it. Now you'll notice 
that the word likeness is occurring a lot, and the word as, and the word appearance, 14 times in three verses. It's like Ezekiel sees this vision, and he says, man, I've got to write about this. How do I describe that? It's sort of like this, and sort of like that, and sort of almost sort of like, almost like that. I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within it, from the appearance of his loins even upward, and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and had brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Best I can do, Ezekiel says. And it was enough. It was enough that when Yahweh came to him and said, be a fool for me in front of these people, Ezekiel said, yes, sir. And when he said, give your, give your wife to me, the desire of your eyes, he said, yes, sir. Because he could not escape that vision of somebody sitting on a throne doing all things well. Running a universe that is not out of control. It's not Nebuchadnezzar he sees up there on the throne. It's not that ridiculous king over in in Judah sitting up there. It's, It's not your professor or your RA or your health problem or your financial problem sitting up there on the throne. It's Yahweh God sitting up there on the throne. And he's got it all under control. His providence is perfect. And I want us to see in closing the two responses Ezekiel has to this. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. What's his first response to seeing Yahweh as he is? Worship. Worship. Are you worshiping today? Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is a consciousness of God in all of our lives. And we are called to live quorum Deo, before God, so that we are constantly worshiping. But then there's a second beautiful result. Down at the end of chapter 2, Yahweh says, here's the prophecy I want you to give. I'll begin at verse 9, where we left off. Chapter 2, verse 9, when I looked, and behold, a hand was sent unto me, and that would be odd, having a hand sent unto you. And lo, a roll of a book. So it was a scroll in the hand. And he spread it before me. And it was written within and without, on both sides, which was unusual. It means a very full message. And what was the message Ezekiel has for these people? Lamentations and mourning and woe. Tough message. And he said, son of man, eat the message. Eat the scroll. Internalize my message. Embrace my will for your life. This is what I've called you to do. Eat it. And frankly, humanly speaking, it wouldn't taste good. This is a scroll full of lamentation and mourning and woe. This is a life calling which is extremely hard. So I opened my mouth. He caused me to eat the scroll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat. Fill thy bowels with it. Let it consume your insides Then I ate it, and look at the last thing in verse 3. What became of the will of God when Ezekiel embraced it? It became in my mouth as honey for sweetness. 
There was nothing sweet about being made a fool for Christ. There was nothing sweet about losing his wife. There was nothing sweet about never getting to serve as a priest. There was nothing sweet about being banished from his home until he saw it all as part of this beautiful, providential work of Yahweh God, and then he could eat it and say, you know, the more I think about it, God makes no mistakes. I think it's going to be okay. I don't know what you're facing, and you don't know what you're facing. What you think you're facing? Ezekiel had no idea what was ahead. You don't know what you're facing the next 40 days, but if you're seeing Yahweh for who he is, you will be able to worship, and you will be able to find joy in what you're facing. That's the blessing of serving a providential God who rides his chariot through this earth, and nothing can stop him. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to consider this text briefly this morning. Lord, there's so much here, we've just barely scratched the surface, but thank you for how this vision was given to Ezekiel so that we could get it. Lord, we can open our Bibles to Ezekiel 1 and always see what Ezekiel saw. And we've even seen more than Ezekiel saw. We've seen the Lord Jesus walking this earth, showing us what you are like. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see so that whatever we're facing, we'll keep our eyes on you and we will find joy and we will be worshipers every day. And I pray this, asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.